Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hi everyone, this is Angel Wilson and welcome to Spark Up. Hello everyone, this is Angel and welcome back to Spark Up in my little corner of the podcast world. Today we're going to be picking up from uh, a part one episode that uh, came out previously where I was giving a lot of my experiences about ABA and why I kind of have a very critical eye toward it. But I also said that I wanted to spend some time and talk about the other approaches, which are more kind of naturalistic and developmental. And that's what I'm going to get into today. Before I get into that, though, I wanted to have a bit of a public service announcement. I wanted to be real with you guys because it's something I will always be on this podcast. So I know that there are a lot of folks, uh, friends of mine or acquaintances or um, colleagues who have also expressed interest in podcasting or just in general, you might be someone who's like, Hey, I'm thinking about podcasting. And a lot of people I think, think that it's just, Oh, I just, I, I set up a, a, you know, a program and I get a microphone and some really cool headphones and I turn on the microphone and hit record and I just start, you know, talking or ranting. And yes, there are some podcasters out there that do that. But if you want to have, I think a solid uh, podcast, it's, it involves so much more than that. And I, sometimes I don't think everyone kind of realizes exactly how much planning and editing and things go into each one of these episodes, especially the longer ones. Like for example, this episode is going to be pretty dense. I'm just going to forewarn you, <laughs> not in the sense of like, oh gosh, it's going to be boring, but in the sense that it involved a lot of research. I am going to be giving you a lot of different studies because when I say that I approve or back a certain approach or an idea, I like to give evidence to support that. That's something that's very important to me. Do all podcasters do that? No. And so that's that's one reason why this podcast can often take more energy, take more time. So in realizing that I'm on, I believe like episode 11 now, like we've passed 10 episodes now. And I'm realizing that it can actually take a lot out of you. There's other things going on with my business and so forth. But I started realizing earlier this week that I probably am due for a bit of a break. So I wanted to give my listeners kind of a heads up. Uh, there's this episode, which will probably be the last kind of long form me by myself episode for this year. 
I have one more episode uh, coming up after this one that we're going to record. That's going to be a guest episode. So that's going to be a lot more kind of dialogue, conversational, and then probably one more mini spark episode. And then right around like just the bit before Thanksgiving is probably when I'm going to take the break for the rest of the year. Because my background, if you don't know, I have a master's in um, mental health counseling. And so self-care is something that's very important to me. And it should be important to you guys, too. So this is me doing a little public service announcement before we get started that, you know, remember, especially as we head into the holiday season, take time for yourselves. Make sure you're practicing self-care. It gets very busy during this time period. It gets extremely stressful during this time period. And just as you're feeling it, if you have um, autistic family members, friends, loved ones, um, kids that are under your care, clients, understand that they're also feeling the stress of this too. And they may not express it in the same way that you do, but they're also feeling stress during this time. So this is a reminder for everybody. Remember self-care during as we roll into the holiday season. Okay, public service announcement over. Now I can jump into the actual meat and potatoes of this uh, of this episode, which is talking about kind of these more naturalistic approaches. And I decided to come from the viewpoint of really, like I said, giving evidence for them and telling you that, you know, you know what, these are just as good in some cases might actually be better than uh, applied behavioral analysis. But we'll get into that in a second. So thanks in huge part to a huge kind of PR push that applied behavioral analysis known henceforth as ABA, uh, they did a huge push to be accepted by the insurance companies way early on when they first kind of got involved in the autism field. And so because of that huge push, they're often presented as the only recourse for families and caregivers to help their autistic loved ones. You know, yes, that speech therapy is mentioned, occupational therapy is mentioned, sometimes other lesser known therapies are mentioned as well. But these days, honestly, ABA is tossed out by the medical world uh, just as fast as Adderall is, <laughs> which by the way, Adderall is having a shortage right now, probably because of all the aforementioned tossing out <laughs> of just constantly uh, prescribing it. So ABA has a similar thing where every time autism is kind of brought up, boom, ABA is the first thing that is thrown out. ABA is kind of seen as the almost like the, I hate to say it like this, but it is like the holy grail of autism services by the autism community, but not the autistic community. And I'm, I'm making you go back a little bit, but way back in the very beginning, I believe the first, either the first or second episodes of the podcast, I mentioned the difference between these two communities on this podcast. The autism community are all of those, I include myself in that category, who are supports, providers, family members, allies, basically everyone who is supposed to rally around and help and um, even in some cases defend the um, 
autistic individuals. The autistic community are those that are made up of actual autistic individuals. So even though the autism community, for the most part, greatly, you know, encourages and supports ABA, the autistic community, um, majority of them, not all of them, but a huge percentage of them have been adamantly against ABA, which as I've touched on in previous episodes, indicates a huge disconnect right there. But I'm not here to just sit there and dump on ABA because I kind of did too much of that in the last, not too much, but I did a lot of that in the last episode. Um, Because while I have my reservations about the approach and probably will always have reservations about that approach, I do understand that there's an actual active movement to evolve it. Um, and it actually make it better, which is great. I love to see that. I think when it comes to um, science in particular, and and that includes psychology, I feel that we have to be willing to evolve our practices and make sure that our practices are backed with research at all times. So I'm here to tell you that ABA actually isn't the only fish in the sea, so to speak. So now we're going to start talking about developmental naturalistic approaches. First off, the developmental naturalistic approaches, which I'm going to call DN. So ABA is the behavioral side of it. DN is the developmental naturalistic side. DN approaches come from a, a bit of a different angle. Uh, ABA or the behavioral approach honestly leans more toward an adult led kind of approach. And it thrives best when there is a more controlled environment, um, meaning that when the adult or the provider has more control over the environment and what's going on in it. The developmental naturalistic or DN view leans more toward child-led approaches. I already know what some of you are probably thinking. Does that mean that you guys just take the child's lead? So if the child just wants to sit there and play with bubbles, then you're just going to play with bubbles? Yes. Yes, that's that's what we're going to do. And I can already hear and feel some of you doing a hard side eye at that. And I know that because I've seen parents give the side eye when we, whenever I've explained this uh, approach. But hear me now. First of all, there is plenty of evidence to support that play is how young children learn, period, regardless of if they're neurotypical, if they're neurodiverse, if they have autism, if they don't. Play is how young children learn and develop. Now I'm going to start giving you all the evidence. So get ready. Here comes a bunch of names and the years that they published the research. According to Hirsch, Pasek, and Glindnoff in 2011, Weinsberg in 2016, and Weinsberg in 2015, preschool children learn through play. So these are studies that actually support that sentence. According to Pellegrini and Galda in 1990 and Glinkoff in 2013, guided play. So that means it's still play, but now it's it's kind of the adult has a little bit of, of say-so in the play, but they're not fully taking it over. Guided play advances cognitive skills such as language. Bergen and Marr in 2000 and Berlin and Singer in 2006 found that it also supports and advances reading. And then Burke et al. in 2006 also found that social skills like emotional regulation are also learned in advance through guided play. So in other words, you have all these different scientific and proven and peer-reviewed studies that indicate that children learn through play. With that in mind, now let's take a look at the evidence backing the DN developmental 
and naturalistic approaches, which again uh, have to do with looking at the typical development of children and using the natural environment and the things around them in order to help them expand and, and learn skills and using the basis of play in order to build on those skills. So starting from where they are and starting from what their interests are and building from there. That's one of the best ways I can kind of summarize this approach. So we're going to go now to the American Psychological Association, also known as the APA. I know I'm throwing a lot of acronyms at you. Feel free to kind of stop, rewind, take notes. I told you this is a bit more of a dense, <laughs> a dense, um, a dense episode. But I think it's important that every now and then we actually have an episode like this where we go and get research because I don't I don't want to say things unless I have research to back it. That's something I will always, always focus on in this uh, on this podcast. So in 2019, so fairly recently, the American Psychological Association published their psychological bulletin and they recognized developmental and naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions and its highest tier of efficacy and supported research among autism treatments. They did a meta-analysis. I've mentioned this term before in previous episodes. This means that a, a meta-analysis basically means they looked at a bunch of studies and compared the results of them and analyzed the results. All of these studies together covered about 6,000 participants. So I'm going to actually read word for word what their public statement was on the study. So this is what they announced to the public once they had done the analysis of all these different studies and come to their conclusions. So I'm going to read it. There might be some terms that you don't understand. I will translate it and put it into layman's terms after I read it, but I want to give the actual quote from the report. So again, from the APA Psychological Bulletin in 2019, this comprehensive meta-analysis of interventions for young children with autism spectrum disorder suggests that naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions and developmental intervention approaches have amassed enough quality evidence to be considered promising for supporting children with autism in achieving a range of developmental outcomes. Behavioral intervention approaches also show evidence of effectiveness, but methodological rigor remains a pressing concern in this area of research. There is little evidence to support the effectiveness of teach, sensory-based interventions, animal-assisted interventions, and interventions mediated solely through technology at this time. So that was a lot. Let me translate. <laughs> the American Psychological Association believes that developmental and naturalistic approaches now have enough evidence to show that they work. Furthermore, behavioral interventions are basically as good as their execution. That's what that rigor was talking about. So in other words, if providers don't understand behavioral interventions, use them poorly, don't use good ethics when they execute them, then this is a concern with the APA because they said they have they don't have any evidence to show that it was a consistent like method of execution through all of the different studies they looked at for behavioral interventions. And that's something that, like I said earlier, the ABA field is starting to notice and realize. And so my hope is that with the American Psychological Association also now saying, yeah, this is a problem. You guys need to show consistency and how you're executing this. Otherwise you have ethical concerns and you're not reaching the goals and the, um, and the things that you say that you're supposed to be reaching. I'm happy that the ABA community is starting to notice that and act on it. 
Now, the researchers also added that these different, the DN approaches, again, developmental naturalistic approaches, work extremely well when parent and caregiver participation is involved. I stress this so much, especially back when I was in the field doing in-home and direct services. I cannot stress this enough. I will always stress the importance of this. The, that means basically the families and the caregivers, that, and when I say caregivers, that also includes nursery, that includes daycare staff, that includes preschool staff, staff that includes schools. They also have to utilize these same skills and techniques in order for the child or the, the person to truly benefit from them. The adults have to follow through. One to three hours a week of a provider is not going to cut it for intervention. And the APA is pretty much confirming this in their meta-analysis study. There has to be the entire team effort. That means providers, you guys have to also kind of go and actually talk to the, the families and actually let them know. Even if it's a situation where you have to take the child to another room and work with them and then come back, you need to let the families know what you did, maybe even test it out with them to see if they can execute and duplicate what you did. Talk to the staff, daycare staff, nursery staff, school staff, so that they understand. And providers and staff, we have to follow through. That is how we give the kids the best hope of really, really gaining everything they can from these interventions. So I'm about to read a, another quote from the psychological bulletin from the APA, because I think this one is also of interest. In the meantime, clinicians are encouraged to expand their knowledge and skills to include naturalistic approaches that center on the principles of early childhood development. States with insurance mandates that explicitly cover traditional behavioral interventions should furthermore revise their policies to also include NDBI and developmental approaches, given that these approaches have now accrued substantial evidence for effects in young children on the autism spectrum from recently published RCTs or studies. So what does that mean? That means that these approaches now have enough evidence to warrant insurance coverage. That was a huge issue leading up to this bulletin in 2019. So since 2019, basically, there's enough evidence that insurance could cover these approaches. There are a few providers that have definitely started utilizing this and, and now are going for insurance coverage so that they can they can offer these services to more families and people. but. This is something that hasn't really been said in the autism community, because again, ABA kind of monopolizes the entire community right now. And of course, they're not going to mention that indie approaches are now, you know, the APA has said, oh, yeah, they're they're cool. They're totally good to be used for um, for insurance to bill. No, they're not going to mention that. But that's a huge thing. And I think that needs to be known by more people, especially our providers, so that they can go and get trained in these approaches so that we now have a wider range of approaches to offer to these families and to these kids. So, of course, where are these interventions? Well, unfortunately, because of this stigma about them that they didn't have enough evidence all the way up until 2019, they're nowhere near as easy as to find as ABA is. A lot of this is due to the insurance situation I mentioned above. Providers can't get paid to offer them because insurance hasn't caught up with the evidence yet. Also adding to this fact is that, to their credit, 
ABA has done a significant amount of PR work for their approach. They have really have touted it as the go-to when it comes to autism. They have sold the insurance companies that is the go-to and the only method for autism. And they have sold them that it's the only evidence-backed model for autism. Well, the American Psychological Association is now saying, actually, naturalistic approaches can now also fit that bill as well. Here in, say, Palm Beach County, are there places that kind of offer like these more kind of developmental early intervention kind of approaches? I've seen such approaches used in, I believe, the ARC. I've seen it used in Easter sales and a few others, such as um, the company Positive Development. They actually, their approach actually is the thing that inspired this episode and led me to start doing more research on it. But I've also noticed that I see providers calling themselves developmental, but offering ABA services, which isn't developmental. (laughs) So that's a thing that's happening, apparently. So always, and I say this regardless of when you're looking for, you know, supports and services for your family members. It doesn't even, not even dealing with autism, like any kind of support and services, do your due diligence, really do research and see what is it, what is their approach? What is their philosophy? You know, what are reviews on this particular organization or company? Do your due diligence. I know that can be a bit of a hassle and time consuming, but it's worth it rather than getting caught up in uh, someone or a organization that does not have the best interest of uh, your family or your needs at heart. So next question, what do you look for in these different developmental programs or approaches? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, tips of things to look out for, not just for the developmental approaches, but also if you decide to go into ABA. This is just kind of overall things that you should kind of look out for, both as positive green flags and some things that are red flags. One of the first things you should look out for when it comes to researching and picking a approach or an organization or a company that you're going to work with and, you know, trust your, your child or your loved one to is, of course, an experienced staff. These types of approaches, especially the developmental naturalistic ones, often involve being able to think on your feet a little bit more because of the fact that this is more play based. And so you have to really know the goals and you have to be ready to, to really merge and roll those goals in to anything that the child is doing. And that's where experience is going to be really crucial. To be honest, like a two to three week training on just methodology doesn't always cut it in these situations. Another thing to look for a green flag is team created goals. This means that all team members, including families and other providers, all have a say in the creation of the goals and they feel heard. I've seen many times where, especially when it comes to reviews of uh, of goals, the family's input would just kind of be washed over and they'll just be like, yeah, we're just going to continue these. And they don't even really ask for the parents' input. That's a red flag. 
Uh, you should always families and and even if it's an older autistic person, the autistic person themselves should be able if they can communicate. And not and I don't mean just not you know verbally. I mean if they can communicate, period, they should have say so in the goals they want to work on as well. So it should be team created. It should be team based. I've had um, kiddos where they totally had a hand in building the the treatment plan. If they were of age and they wanted to be involved in the process, I made sure they were involved in the process. Next, and I've already mentioned this before, but parent family caregiver involvement. And like I said, this goes for any intervention. At the bare minimum, there should be time during the sessions dedicated to talking to the family and the caregivers about how to implement strategies. That could be as simple as 15 minutes at the end of the session time while you're writing your note, you talk to the teacher about what you went over, what was discussed, and even show them maybe, hey, this is the thing that we're working on to get Johnny to hold a spoon and use a spoon to scoop his oatmeal. Something as simple as that. Also, this one, I'm going to have to talk a little bit about this next one. So a program the child actually looks forward to or at least tolerates. If the child is avoiding the sessions or really strongly protesting them, there may be a reason for this. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute because I can hear the ABA people starting to raise their hands. In ABA, there is a term, or at least when I was first taught about ABA, there was a term known as extinction burst. And basically, again, this I'm going to go ahead and say I'm looking at it through my lens, and this was how I observed this was done and, and, and executed. Basically, it's kind of having the child, the child's having a meltdown or getting really upset over a a situation or an intervention being used. You basically, you, you don't, you don't really, I won't say that you don't comfort them, but you see it as, well, this is a means to an end rather than, hey, the child might actually be getting kind of traumatized by the situation, maybe we should find a different way of doing it. And the story that I gave in the last episode about the 10-year-old in the Halloween store, I think is a prime example of this. This child was screaming, crying, begging to be let out of the store. And this particular BCBA, Board Certified Behavioral Analyst, would not let them out because they were going on this idea of extinction burst. Nope. We sit them and keep them in this environment or keep them in this situation until they literally stop protesting. And then we go ahead and then we can go forward and get progress. I'm telling you from the naturalistic viewpoint, um, that approach doesn't really doesn't really fly, to be honest. Uh, we believe for the most part, or I believe also that if the child is having a severe adverse effect, the last thing we want to do is push a skill or a behavior that that child's going to associate with really strong negative feelings or even trauma. I don't use the word trauma lightly, but I have seen some kids who I think suffered trauma from that. That child, that 10-year-old, he never wanted to step foot in another Halloween store ever again. So we had the complete opposite effect. It literally did the opposite of what we were trying to do, which was build tolerance to being in an environment like that. Instead, it did the complete opposite. He never wanted to step foot in it ever again. That's not what we want to go for. We want to build up tolerance. So if you have a child who is really happy about the, the program, I, I, I hate to see when parents are like, oh, I think they're having too much fun. What is it? They're a child. 
It's a toddler. I would hope they were having fun while learning. That's how they learn. (laughs) So if the child is enjoying the approach and the provider is able to show you, hey, here's how they're improving on their goals, that's a win-win for everyone. Next thing that, that is a green flag is an exit strategy. When I was in the autism field as a direct service provider, I always joked that my end goal was to quote unquote, lose my job. I wanted the family or the caregivers to get to the point where they didn't need me anymore. I've actually seen providers and organizations who will encourage ongoing services that aren't needed anymore for the child just to keep that money flowing in. If you have a child who seems to be in any program, naturalistic, ABA, behavioral, developmental, doesn't matter. Any program, speech, occupational, and they just seem to be sitting at this one plateau and they've been there for months and nothing is changing. And when you ask about it, the provider or providers are like, oh, well, you know, this is just how it is. It's time for you to start asking questions, which leads me right into the next one. Green flag is consistent and respectful communication. Jokingly, you should be on a first name basis with them. (laughs) You should feel comfortable speaking up if you have concerns. If you're, like I said, nine months in and you still feel intimidated talking to a provider, a school or organization, they fail to connect with you. You should feel comfortable bringing up your concerns, bringing up observations. You should feel comfortable sending an email saying, hey, we noticed that uh, Carrie has started, you know, biting a bit more. Um, you know, have you guys noticed that at the school? And if so, you know, do you think that's a concern that warrants adding a new goal? You should be able to have those conversations. You should be able to call up a provider and say, Hey, we've noticed that Andrew has been having a really hard time with this particular behavioral tech. Uh, can we possibly like call like a little powwow or a little meeting to kind of just sit and see what's going on there? It does the tech feel comfortable working with Andrew? if there can be things to kind of improve their rapport with each other. And if not, does another tech need to be brought in? You should feel comfortable having those kind of conversations with the service providers and the people that you work with. If you don't, and I'll say this even to providers, you should feel comfortable talking to other providers. If you feel like you're getting brushed off or, you know, kind of lowballed or ignored, that's a red flag. That's someone who's not you know, not really contributing to the team or not contributing in a way that they really could. That's a red flag for sure. Next, you should have documents that you can understand. One of my biggest pet peeves is hearing providers either speak or write and use industry jargon and language that literally no one outside of that industry or field would understand. Like if you notice during this episode, I said a bunch of things that might have sounded like complete goggly gook to some folks, and then I translated it into common terms because I think that's important because what I wanted to say I knew was important. The study results of this were important, and I wanted to make sure that you all understand what it was that I was saying. Your providers should do the exact same thing. You should not be sitting there with your eyes glazing over because you can't understand two-thirds of what's coming out of their mouth. They should be able to stop and explain They should be able to explain acronyms to you, just like I've been doing and trying to do throughout this entire episode. That's what you should be getting from your providers. So you should be able to understand any document that comes in front of you. And again, going back on that communication part, 
You should feel comfortable asking questions if there's something in there that you don't understand. And finally, there should be a willingness to collaborate with other professionals. I really give a huge um, side eye to anyone that says that they have the child's best interest at heart, uh, be it another provider, be it a daycare, be it a nursery, be it a school, but then refuse to work with other providers, refuse to let providers into their environment if it's a school or a daycare, or refuse to get tips from providers. Either, quite frankly, either they're too proud or they're too scared. But if you say that you have the child's best interest at heart, then you should be open and willing to collaborate with all the other professionals on that child's team. If you as a parent or a caregiver are noticing that your school is not allowing providers in to work with the kids, if you're noticing that uh, a daycare center uh, just is not following through on tips given, even though, you know, there's evidence that, hey, these providers have been leaving tips and trying to explain how to do this. Providers, if you notice that, you know, certain staff or individuals or providers are just not listening, and sometimes they'll even straight straight up tell you, I've had um, caregivers straight up just tell me, um, I don't need to know this, or but then they'll sit and still complain about the child's behaviors. Really interesting, <laughs> but I've had this happen multiple times. You need a team that are all 100% in, all on board and willing to work with each other and collaborate with each other so that everyone's on the same page, everyone knows what to do, no one is stepping on each other's toes, and most importantly, that child or individual is getting the best from every member of that team. And you get the best from every member of the team when all the team members are on the same page and working together. You deserve that. And you should expect that from any service provider that you work with. I wanted to bring up some of the other studies that I've seen in my research that also support a lot of what the APA was uh, saying in their psychological bulletin. So this is specifically with regards to naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. So these are the ones that kind of, yes, they have some behavioral elements in there, but for the most part, it's the naturalistic developmental approach. So there is a huge growing body of evidence like the APA mentioned in their bulletin and I'm going to actually go through some of that other research now, because again, I love to back up what I say with research. So I'm going to hit you guys with the knowledge bomb now. First, three independent reviews by the California Health Benefits Review Program at the University of California, Berkeley. These reviews happened in 2018, 2019 and 2021. So pretty recent conducted to advise the California legislator found that DRBI, that's the Naturalistic Developmental Behavioral Interventions, it's NDBI in this, uh, in this study, found that it has enough evidence, it's evidence-based for treating children with autism. 
So that was three different studies, all done fairly recently, that were actually given to the California legislative, the you know the Congress, basically the representatives in California. All of these different approaches have a moderate effect size on social communication in children with autism, while ABA research is inadequate to calculate an effective size. So effect size is basically kind of how many are actually effective and affected in what way. This is from Sand Bake in 2020. This research won a 2021 award from the International Society for Autism Research. Next one. Gerald Mahoney, along with F. Perales, demonstrated that relationship-focused interventions like the naturalistic and developmental ones are effective for children with autism in several papers. There was about one, two, three, four. There's about four papers. Uh, and I think it looks like it was in 2003, 2005, 2009. So this one researcher alone did several studies to kind of show that relationship-focused interventions like the naturalistic ones are extremely helpful with autism. For my providers, uh, these approaches reduce ADOS scores dramatically in children with autism. That's from Solomon in 2014. They help with social communication in children with autism. That's from Kaisheiser in 2011 and 2014. The parent coaching approach with these improves parent responsiveness in children with autism. That's from Siller in 2013 and 2014. So this comes back to what I, what, um, I say when I say that like the caregivers and parents really need to be involved. So when they're coached alongside with these services, their ability to respond to their autistic children greatly increases. And that, of course, also minimizes the parent frustration. Uh, these approaches help a range of functional goals in children with autism. This was a meta-analysis, remember that term, meaning a huge study done on a bunch of different studies. This was done by Benz in 2019. And finally, developmental and parent-implemented interventions yield statistically significant outcomes. That's from Steinbrenner in 2020. Translation of that one basically saying that these type of interventions that are naturalistic, developmental-based, and have the parents kind of as lead actually do yield outcomes that can be measured. Like you can see, you can measure the progress that the kids are making. And of course, for something to be considered legit or evidence-based, you have to be able to show data and proof that it actually is improving the child's lives. And again, all these different studies are corroborating and confirming what the APA said in their psychological bulletin that these approaches do most certainly work. My final kind of takeaway from all of this uh, evidence and, and all these studies and all of this data that I just threw at you, takeaway, the main thing to kind of take away from this is, I think all of these interventions can have a place in the autism services world. I think all of them can be utilized. I think it's good to have a variety to choose from that caters to what the child and what the family needs. One doesn't need to monopolize the entire industry like ABA has. Again, I, I I don't sit there and say that I think ABA should be completely abolished. There are a lot that call for that, quite a few that call for that. I do think that other options need to be put forward. I think that these other options need to be held up just as highly and sometimes more highly than ABA. And I think we need to 
be understanding of the fact that one size does not fit all, that there are a variety of different things. And even though the APA found, they said that, you know what, we haven't seen evidence of sensory-based or um, animal-based therapies kind of working. That doesn't mean that they may not necessarily work for an individual child or an individual family or an individual, you know, autistic person. It could just be, it's just simply, there hasn't been enough evidence yet. And that's the purpose of science is to go and build evidence. We present theories, we go and build evidence to either support or cast down those theories. And then we make interventions and plans and strategies and and programs based on that evidence that we've gathered. That's what science is all about. That's why I love the field so much. That's why I love sharing this with you guys and why I geek out a little about it. Um, I'm by no means like a hardcore statistics person. I'm, I That was my least favorite class in psychology, actually. But I love using it on this level to kind of help um, educate all of you who who listen in. And because I want to have a sense of integrity with this podcast, I want to make sure that you know, hey, when I say these things, I'm not just pulling it out of thin air. This is either from anecdotal personal experience that I've had, or if it comes to like things where it's evidence-based, I'm going to bring up the evidence to back it up. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Like I said, I know it was a little bit more dense than usual, but I think there are some real gems in it. And I hope you all took away that there are other options out there. There's an array of things that you can do to help with the kiddos, with your adults on the spectrum. And so if you want to continue this conversation, if you want to possibly be a guest on the podcast, probably not for the rest of this year, but in 2023, hit me up. You can email me at angelw, that's A-N-G-E-L-W, at sparkguidance.com. That's spelled S-P-A-R-C. G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. If you want to catch up on episodes of this podcast, that is at sparkupautism.com. That's S-P-A-R-C-U-P-A-U-T-I-S-M.com. It has all the episodes. And you can also, if you scroll down to the bottom of that page, you can also go and listen to it through Amazon Music, Apple Music, you name it, it's on there. If you want to check out my website and learn more about my business and what I do, that is sparkguidance.com. Same spelling as everything else, S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E. And if you want to hit up my Instagram, that is at sparkguidance. I hope you, again, hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I look forward to speaking with you and speaking to you and interacting with you guys in the next episode. Until then, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.